0: You're listening today to the Oral Cancer Answers, a podcast from the Oral Cancer Foundation. This is 2018 episode one, an interview with Dr. Ross Kerr, who is an oral medicine specialist and researcher at NYU. This is Brian broadcasting from the OCF office in Boise, Idaho, and my co-host today is Caitlin, the OCF director of operations online from the Newport Beach office. Hey, is, Hi. So, this episode and future podcasts are immediately available for download at uh, www.anchor.fm slant oral cancer, and in a couple of weeks, they will be available on the iTunes store for free, usually two to three weeks after um, they are recorded and uploaded to them. So, Caitlin, I don't think that you've ever um, interacted with Dr. Kerr before, right?
1: No, I haven't. So this is going to be a complete learning experience for me. Great.
0: And hopefully for our listeners as well. Um, I'd like to first give you, before we bring him online, a little background about the doctor and our relationship to him. Dr. Kerr is an oral medicine specialist and a researcher at NYU. When um, I first started OCF, I developed a relationship with him as an advisor to helped me ensure that the information that OCF put out in the world was scientifically accurate. But he became so much more than that. As I was transitioning from my world of being a patient to someone informed enough to help others on their journey, I had a lot of learning to do about the disease. And uh, Dr. Kerr was one of my first mentors that spent many hours ensuring that I understood oral cancer in depth. Over many years, he mentored my knowledge base along with others. I have to tell you that as I'm not always the brightest student, working with me showed that Ross has a great deal of patience. (laughs) One of the other things that Dr. Kerr worked with OCF on was um, his acting as the primary coordinator of our oral cancer walks, which took place at NYU each year, and which raised a great deal of funding for the Foundation through an effort that lasted over a decade. So I personally, and OCF as well, are greatly in his debt. He's been the past president of the American Academy of Oral Medicine. He's authored or co-authored countless peer-reviewed articles on oral medicine and oral cancer specifically. So we're really lucky to have him as our guest today.
1: Yeah, this is gonna be great, I'm super excited.
0: Okay, so I'm gonna take a quick pause here while I get him online and we'll be right back. Okay, we're back on the line with Caitlin from the OCF office in Newport Beach and now we have with us Dr. Ross Kerr from NYU. Good morning, Ross.
1: Hi, Dr. Ross.
0: Hi, how are you? Um, We're doing really good. Um, We're so pleased to have you with us today. Um, We had a chance on social media to ask some questions of our followers. Of things that they would like to hear about from you. So, we're going to kind of bounce all over the map a little bit today in our conversation rather than look at one specific idea. And uh, I think the first thing that I would like to establish with our listeners is what is an oral medicine specialist and how is it different from other disciplines in dentistry?
2: So Oral medicine, which actually uh, in the U.S. originated at uh, NYU, which I'm very proud about in the Department of Periodontology and Oral Medicine back in the in the 50s. And essentially, it is a specialty that deals with the diagnosis and management of complex um, oral diseases, obviously not gum disease, not dental decay and not sort of the the common diseases that typically a dentist would manage, but more often um, what we call oral mucosal diseases. So we're rather like the dermatologist to the lining of the inside of the mouth. Um, We're very interested in dry mouth and salivary gland um, dysfunction. So people who have too little or too much saliva, um, orofacial pain, excluding toothaches and infections, but things like neuropathic pain or um, neuralgias or musculoskeletal pain, pain in the the, the muscles of mastication, um, and other disorders of what's called the temporomandibular joint, which is your jaw joint, and uh, and then another area is the dental management or the oral care of people who are who have chronic medical diseases. So the medically complex patient. This could be patients who are undergoing cancer treatment, for instance, and they develop all sorts of different um, complications that make it more difficult to provide dental care um, or other people with other uh, medical conditions. So that's sort of, we're very much diagnosticians and we tend to manage patients with chronic diseases, whereas a surgeon would go in, do an operation have the patient back and follow them through to healing and then say goodbye, I end up getting married to most of my (laughs) patients. You know, they will see me for years and years and years and actually develop, you know, wonderful relationships with them. So, um, I think that sort of captures the essence
0: of what we do as oral medicine specialists. Wow, that's really complex. Uh, And I understand that there's not so many oral medicine specialists in the United States.
2: No, there are fewer than 300 um, boarded oral medicine specialists. But there are You know, a number of um, um, non-boarded specialists, dental or medical, who have a real interest in oral medicine. So um, there are lots of people who are interested in oral medicine that don't necessarily have to go through formal training. And um, I'm very involved with the American Academy of Oral Medicine. And our organization is really fantastic because we, we really are very inclusive to any healthcare provider that has an interest in, you know, the diseases that we diagnose and uh, and manage.
0: And most of you are located at uh, teaching institutions? Yes, yes. Typically,
2: most of us are academics. Um, but we, there are some outliers. There are some specialists who are in, um, you know, in private practice. But yes, you're essentially correct.
0: All right. Well, thank you for that. I mean, that was that's a broad base of knowledge that you have to draw from to get to that. So I'm going to go through the just starting off the bat with some of the questions that people have written in about and one of the common complications to oral cancer patients after treatment is ORN and um, you know I think that's something that It's poorly understood, and I don't know what options there are for treatment, and we'd like to explore that a little bit.
1: Can we just take a second to really discuss what ORN is?
0: Yeah, Ross, how about just defining what it is? So
2: osteo, break it down into three bits, osteo, radio, and necrosis. So osteo really refers to bone. Radio refers to the radiation Treatment that the person must have received in order to develop osteoradionecrosis necrosis. And necrosis just essentially means the death of the bone. Uh, and so, people who undergo radiation treatment to the head and neck structures, and particularly the lower jawbone, known as the mandible, or the upper jawbone, but predominantly it occurs more frequently with um, the jawbone the lower jawbone the mandible high doses of radiation treatment and that's typically in the realm of what we call 60 um, gray that's a very very high dose of radiation that is typically the dose that someone uh, being treated for oral cancer would receive that radiation you know on its way to hitting the tumor often passes through, you know, other healthy structures and one of the most sensitive structures of the bone. And so the bone, particularly the mandible, because of its structure and its um, density, um, absorbs that radiation so that um, later on, usually sometime, you know, from six months on, that person can undergo um, a small dental procedure, like an extraction or something like that, and the bone essentially doesn't heal the way that normal bone would typically heal following a minor insult like a a small dental extraction. Um, Sometimes it can occur without any type of dental trauma, but that is probably the um, procedure that precipitates, you know, a large majority of these patients with osteonecrosis. So ultimately, the radiation damages the blood vessels that feed the bone. And those blood vessels, as a result, there isn't as much um, blood flow into the bone and as a result, it doesn't heal as well when there is some sort of traumatic procedure. Um there's more complexity to the you know to the the actual what's going on in the bone after radiation, but I, I think that's
0: probably I hope. Oh, no, that explains it quite well. Um so um having an extraction, so as most oral cancer patients know, maybe not so many our listeners from the RDH community or the dental community know that before you undergo uh, radiation treatments um, the dental department of your um, treatment facility will usually go through your mouth they will want to ensure that the dentition is in reasonable repair no periodontal diseases of consequence and all that and if you do have compromised teeth long before you begin your radiation treatments, they will do extractions on patients to remove those compromised teeth. And that always was a curiosity to me at the beginning. I didn't have to go through that personally. If you have compromised teeth, having them taken out after radiation is definitely problematic. So for those of you um, that are in the beginning of your treatment process and all that, remember that because of this non-healing wound opportunity that happens after radiation, because of the lack of vascularization that Dr. Kerr has been describing, um, you may get extractions prior to treatment so that any compromised teeth or any teeth that they do not believe will be successful over the long run are not part of a problem post-treatment. So, uh, having said that now, um, if you are unlucky enough to have osteoradionecrosis as part of your world after treatment, let's say you do have a compromised tooth and an extraction does take place, um, what, and, and, it does, and it does turn into this non-healing wound, what are the options to deal with that situation given that we can't really change the blood supply too much? and we can't um, keep it clean well enough to prevent infections from taking place. So where is the patient left at this point in time?
2: Yes, it's a very good question. And so the first step is typically staging the osteoradionecrosis. So some people have just a very small amount of uh, bone necrosis, other people Unfortunately, develop a larger area of bone necrosis. Let's talk about the larger area, the people with a very large area of their jawbone that becomes necrotic. Those patients, there's not much that can be done other than a surgical type treatment with a head and neck surgeon. And there are now some very good ways of replacing that dead bone, taking out a part of the mandible um, and Putting in um, a free a vascular free flap, that's probably the most successful way of managing big defects. But most people don't get the advanced disease. Most people will have what's called you know type one or type two you know disease, and type one disease is essentially you know a smaller area, and we usually manage those patients quite conservatively by, just pulling out little tiny pieces of dead bone and sort of scraping the area, putting patients on any pain medication or antibacterial rinses or an antibiotic just to help that area slowly heal. And often that will be sufficient. And the little pieces of dead bone is called sequestrum. And we can just, you know, essentially painlessly Pull those little tiny pieces out if if we have to. Um, And then if it gets a little bit larger, then, you know, sometimes we can do a little bit more um, of a surgical procedure to sort of scrape out the bone. And again, the same type of um, strategy. Now, there are other modalities that have been shown to be useful. Um, And one of them, and many people have heard of this, is called hyperbaric oxygen treatment. And that's essentially where the patient will go and sit in a small hyperbaric oxygen chamber. Actually, there are some places that have larger chambers. And they are put into this chamber and in a pressurized state, um, more oxygen gets into the tissues and they go for these what are called dives. And typically, that's another modality of treatment. The problem is is that the studies showing um, the use of HBO treatment, there are some studies that show it helps, some studies that suggest that it doesn't help, and it typically is quite expensive. Um, It can be claustrophobic to sit in one of these chambers. But in, in some patients, it may be helpful. The only other thing that they're now looking at is a regimen, a medication regimen, which involves the use of a drug called pentoxifylline, um, in addition to vitamin E and a bisphosphonate, which is a drug that will um, prevent the resorption of bone. It has an effect on the little tiny cells that um, gobble up the dead bone, known as um, osteoclasts and that's called clodronate. And so there have been some preliminary studies to suggest that being on those three medications at once may also help. But again, we need more studies in this regard. So the standard of care for early stage is generally conservative, um, just trying to sort of nurse along the the dead bones, pulling out the, the, the bits that that are dead, because they're of no use, and trying to gain some healing, Um, then adding in things like um, HBO treatment, and then finally, this new treatment that is sort of uh, being adopted in in certain um, treatment centers. And that's essentially it. If you have dental treatment, I was gonna say one other thing, if you are going to have dental treatment, like an extraction, in the mandible, um, a lower molar tooth or something like that, it's a good idea to go and have that taken out by an oral and maxillofacial surgeon that is really expert in minimizing the, uh, any complications related to that extraction and making sure that they you know, close up the, the wound as best as possible. That will also offer a better opportunity for the bone
0: to heal. I'm curious. The drug which you mentioned uh, being used with vitamin E—this um, was something that was in the market already available for something else. It wasn't developed for this particular use. Yeah,
2: that—that's true. Yeah,
0: it's—it's it, uh, its primary mechanism is to increase uh, blood flow in small capillaries and that sort of thing is that what it is
2: yeah so essentially the pentoxyphiline is a drug that um, does sort of cause a little bit of vascular um, widening widening of the little blood vessels allowing the blood flow to get through it also probably acts as an anti-inflammatory as well because it affects some of the little molecules that are released Um, in inflammation uh, known as tnf alpha and so it may work it's hard to say exactly how it's working but that's it was originally given actually for people who did have you know vascular problems problems with blood flow to increase the blood flow to patients that had um, you know diabetic you know um vascular disease and things like that
0: so they were developing peripheral neuropathies and things and this helped alleviate that some right exactly
1: so okay just to kind of expand on that um so you said that that vitamin e is uh to help the blood flow like an aid for the blood vessels
2: not the vitamin E per se. the okay. which is okay. you know the first medicine that I that I mentioned. The vitamin E, um, you know, I'm not quite sure exactly you know what the mechanism is. I mean, vitamin E is you know obviously right. required for tissue health and um, can have an impact on the endothelial cells, which um, are the cells that line the blood vessels. Um, that's probably why it was given as well.
1: Okay, I see. All right,
0: so thank you very much for explaining that. This is uh, can be kind of a rabbit hole for patients when something like this develops, yeah. if it gets out of hand. Uh, one of our mutual friends, uh, Dr. De La Cure, has done several uh, uh, graphs related to rebuilding mandibles. Uh, Dennis, I've, I've watched him in these surgeries, it's a very complex idea. Yeah. And hopefully, um, if any of our listeners are having something I just develop catching this at the earliest point in time when it can be dealt with more conservatively, is definitely the path to go down. Thank you for exploring that with us. Um, the next question, which has come up um, quite a bit from the RDH community, is a question about lesions in the mouth. And while we don't have the ability through um, video on this t- podcast to explain this in detail, the main essence of their questions gets down to things that are dangerous and things that are likely less so. So the, I think the, the issue is, when do they choose as RDHs and general practitioners of dentistry to watch something and wait? Uh, to see if it becomes something more. And when is it essential that watching and waiting is not one of the choices and they refer this out for biopsy or for further definition of what it actually is. And I think that um, there are two issues. One is they don't want to let something prosper that might be dangerous. So we want to define things for them which are... Worthy of watching and waiting on maybe small white lesions and whatnot, which don't fall into that category And then afterwards, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the liability Of letting something prosper and not be sent out for referral But in your mind, if you had to um, Just in general talk to patients and say Here's a category, here's the realm of, here's a palette of lesion types These types over here I could watch and wait for some point in time, document them, monitor them closely. These other ones of this type, I wanna send out for immediate evaluation by biopsy or something else. How would you separate uh, oral abnormalities into those two areas? Okay,
2: okay, Um, that's a very good question. So, you know, it's interesting The term, you know, suspicious, you know, what is a suspicious lesion that, you know, that threshold of suspicion is obviously different depending on your experience and depending on your your training. Um, So let's go to the worst end first, the way that I did with the Mm osteoradionecrosis. Let's take the, you know, the worst case scenario. Obviously, the worst case scenario is that you encounter, as a clinician, a malignant lesion. And a malignant lesion, you know, can be small. It doesn't have to be the, you know, what you would imagine the, what I call the across the room diagnosis, where you go out to the waiting room and you've already worked out that this person has a malignancy. I've been to... You know, India, and I've gone into rooms of patients where every one of them, you already know that they have a malignancy. We're not talking about that. Um, you don't win a gold star for recognising that someone has a large malignancy in their mouth. But malignancies, when they're small, still carry a lot of the high-risk type features and. One of them is the symptom that the patient presents with. Typically, a malignancy can, can be painful, and malignancies are particularly painful when they're larger, but even small malignancies can be painful. There's a myth out there that a small cancer isn't painful. It's only painful when it grows to be a size where it infiltrates the nerve and everything else, but in fact, a small cancer releases its own little chemical signature that can cause the little pain receptors to react. So particularly mechanical stimuli, so touching the lesion, pushing on it, if that elicits pain, that could potentially be a bad sign. Then the color, looking at a lesion and looking at the, the appearance of the lesion, small cancers can sometimes present just with a sore, with nothing else than a, a little um, sore in the mouth, an ulcer, which is um, essentially means that there is a little um, area in that lining skin where the skin has eroded away and there's left with a sore and that quite often is you know sensitive and then red areas red and white areas um, the redness is a much higher indicator that there's something worse going on than white so sometimes a lesion can be red sometimes a lesion can be red and white Um, if a lesion in the mouth Is growing away from the surface and um, is not flat to the surface that also potentially is a red um, a red light Um, so let's summarize that so people that have a sore um, a red patch or a red and white patch or if it's raised off the surface Um, If it's painful to pushing on and if that lesion has been there for a period of time, it's been there if the patient says that's been there for, you know, more than a couple of weeks, then those are all things that we need to be concerned about. Now, if you put your gloves on and you feel the lesion and the lesion feels firm, let's say the lesion is on the side of the tongue, for instance. And you put your finger on one side of the tongue, the healthy side of the tongue, and you know how the tongue feels when you compress the tongue. It's relatively soft. And now you put your finger on the lesion that's on the other side of the tongue. If it feels firm or a little bit hard, that's known as induration, And that means that whatever's going on on the surface is going deeper. And it's infiltrating into the deeper structures so a patient that has a firm area on the side of the tongue or inside the cheek or in another location of the mouth that that is also a very very ominous sign now at the other end of the spectrum lesions that are very very small and i'm talking here you know less than a centimeter in diameter and they're white and you know, they they look homogeneous in their color. So from one edge of the lesion to the other edge of the lesion all looks the same. Then those are typically, you know, something that you probably are not gonna be as concerned about because either they represent something that's very early, that could potentially be serious. But at that stage, it might warrant the patient coming back if you can't find another reason for why that lesion is there. Lesions with malignant potential, typically, you cannot work out why they're there. It's not like a traumatic lesion of the mouth, which a sharp tooth or something rubbing against the area. It's almost forming a callus on the side of the tongue. If you can see that there is an obvious reason why that lesion is there, then that's probably doesn't have malignant potential. And you can test out that hypothesis by smoothing off the tongue, uh, the uh, the tooth, and then having the patient come back in a couple of weeks to see whether or not that you know, removal of that stimulus is resulting in a resolution of the little lesion. So small lesions, sometimes they're so small that you can't really work out what's going on. But any lesion in the mouth that you cannot explain And there are lots and lots of different reasons why people get sores in their mouth or little patches, white patches or red patches in their mouth that have nothing to do with oral cancer or what we call potentially malignant disorders. These are lesions that essentially precede a cancer and have a higher risk of becoming a cancer over over time. Um, I'm sure that I've left something out, but (laughs) I'm sure Brian
0: will correct me. No, I I wouldn't think of that. But I remember when you took me originally through this process and we identified various characteristics of lesions, um, you know, coloration of them was one. Um, And as we got up into the dangerous range, they were friable. You know, when yes. we touch them, they bleed easily, um, that they were um, indurated. Uh, so when you have things that are ulcered out, those attract more attention than things that are not. Um, things that were also exophytic and growing out from the tissue um, yes. were, were curiosities. Some of them obviously are benign papillomas and things, but... I think you really divided this up into a very simple-to-understand idea. Um, When you get down to these ones, which are um, on the low suspicion level, um, that they're white, they're small, they have not been there a protracted period of time, Um, some people are advocating that we do some type of preliminary evaluation, like a brush biopsy of it, to see... Um, If that turns up something, you know, early in the process, are you much of a believer in breast cytology and collecting cells that way?
2: Yeah, good, good question. So what's interesting is, is that the gold standard for the diagnosis of any of these types of lesions is to remove the lesion or to take what we call an incisional biopsy, which is essentially a representative sample of the lesion. We send that to the pathologist, and then they give us um, their definitive, what we call histopathologic diagnosis. So that's the microscopic diagnosis. And, um, you know, that, unfortunately, you know, even though that has been the technique that we have implemented for the last, you know, over 50 years, it's not perfect. And um, the cytology, which is essentially collecting cells with a brush, uh, at that then those cells are analyzed in a different way, um, that is a pretty good what we call a surrogate for histopathology. In other words, when you compare the results of a brush sample and then immediately take the gold standard biopsy and you compare the results of the two tests, they correlate very, very well. Um, The disadvantage of the cytology is that you don't see the architecture the way that the layers of the cells are organized in the lining skin, the lining mucosa. So it doesn't give you as much information as a um, as a scalpel biopsy and histopathology, but it gives you enough information to be able to make a, a decision. And the, the good thing about it is it's non-invasive. So a biopsy, is still relatively minimally invasive, but it does require the patient to have an injection, you know, which is no fun to have in, the, in your tongue or in another part of your mouth. And the healing after a biopsy is uncomfortable for, for several days. So there is some morbidity in having a scalpel biopsy performed that you wouldn't have in the cytology. So yes, I would say to you, it is a reasonable, um, test that can be done. Uh, most dentists don't feel comfortable performing scalpel biopsies. So if it's the difference between getting a biopsy and the patient refusing to have a biopsy, it would be a very good test to perform, um, what would be great in in the future would be to be able to work out which of these innocent lesions, if you had a crystal ball and you could predict, you know, based on the molecular signature of the cells in these lesions, which of these lesions were more likely down the road to become a cancer, that would be really useful. Most of these lesions truly do not become a cancer and so sometimes i feel that we're you know trying to assess these lesions every little innocent lesion that one looks at it's really a very small fraction of them that ultimately are going to potentially have an impact on this patient's life Um, so the question of how to perform risk assessments on little lesions that are encountered in a dental office is a really interesting question and that's what we're trying to to tackle um so that we can minimize the amount of um procedures that are done because the more procedures we do unnecessarily is not good for the patient it's not good for the healthcare system in general but Yes, to answer your question, cytology is a pretty strong surrogate for the gold standard histopathology.
0: Yeah, uh, our mutual friend um, Mark Lingen at the University of Chicago, you know, has been a um, researcher in pathology who has worked on uh, DNA and molecular markers for... Um, looking at these things in a more sophisticated way. Um, hopefully that would be the future of being able to sift out from all these people what is genuinely dangerous and what is not. But I think everybody pretty much agrees today that those types of tests are not quite ready for prime time. They were still trying to define the giveaway. away... Um, DNA changes or molecular marker changes or proteins that are available to us to analyze, uh, but that would certainly change the paradigm down the road. Yeah, yeah, you're right.
1: Um, Going back to biopsies and things like that, uh, you did say obviously it is a bit invasive to do a biopsy. So things that you see in the mouth that aren't blindingly like, we need to have that biopsy this moment, what is so you just keep an eye on it and suggest that they that the patient comes back routinely what what's the dividing line between deciding what needs to be biopsied and what is just something to monitor
0: so I'd just like to interject one thing in here because I've been in the middle of too many depositions related to things that got out of hand when people did not refer um, uh, the, What happens? The safe thing to do if you're in general practice, we have a really good referral system in dentistry. The um, hygienist, who may be the one doing the oral cancer exams in the office, sees something which she finds suspicious. She refers it, obviously, to the general dentist in her office, a little bit more educated, a little bit more knowledgeable. But I think it's safe to say that determining what something is with the naked eye is not a very accurate way of being sure of what you're talking about so what he would do then is make an evaluation of his own but if there was any doubt in his mind about this and the safe thing for him to do legally would be to refer this further up the dental food chain the next step in which would be the oral surgeon now i'm In due respect to oral surgeons, they also, with the naked eye, are not going to be able to tell what something is or is not. So their job would be to do the biopsy, whether it's a punch or it's an incisional biopsy, and send it out to another person up the food chain, which would be the oral pathologist, who generally doesn't see patients, but spends his day with a microscope, looking at things, where we get a more gold-standard, black-and-white answer of what it is so the patient is served well by this referral system and moving up that chain of custody and also uh, the practices that are engaging with this patient are protecting themselves we live in a very litigious society and knowing that when things go sideways you're going to end up on the receiving end of a lawsuit far too often this is good protection in that process Um, but in general There's also custody of the patient means not only did I examine them, I made good records in their charts of what I found and what I did. And if that patient is going out for biopsy, the referring office and the GP end of it should call their associate, the oral surgeon, and make the appointment for the patients. Once that appointment's been made by the office staff to the next person up the food chain, This legal issue that always comes up is defined clearly. I have passed custody of this patient to you. The patient now has an appointment. I've done my part. And this is an important little step that every time I've been deposed in a legal issue related to you, what we referred, what we saw, what we did with it, uh, always comes up. So um, I always like to emphasize when I speak to people that We've got this super well-established referral chain all the way from the hygienist, all the way to the pathologist. These people work with each other as a matter of course. Not using it is foolish for the patient. It's foolish for your dental practice as well. So do not be afraid to refer it out if you're unsure what it is and it's persisting. And as Ross says, there's no no explanation. It seems obvious as to why it's there.
1: Yeah, so often I, I... Talk to people that did go to their dentist. They had something that had persisted for a few weeks. And then, you know, the dentist takes a deeper look at it. No, it's fine. Come back in six months if it persists. And then by that time, they've had this avalanche effect. And so by the time they finally have it biopsied, it's completely out of control. So it's, I'm just curious. Yeah, like, I, I guess it's, um, don't be afraid to refer because it's it would be better to have the biopsy as something invasive like that than to just take your chances
0: and this yeah. is this is not a wildly invasive biopsy by the standards of many medical biopsies. This is a small three and a half millimeter punch, maybe a five millimeter punch or a small scalpel incision. Some of them just heal by secondary intent. There's no stitch even put in it. Um so at the end of the day, this it shouldn't be something that patients are afraid to ask for if they feel like there's some ambiguity about where they are in the whole scheme of things Ross uh, thank you so much for answering that part of the question because that came up a lot and um, you know some of the things that are um, cancer mimics that you know, a hygienist might find in the mouth um you know, like um, other types of um, diseases, Uh, what would you put into that category of really confusing cancer mimics?
2: Well, of course, uh, you know, cancer can almost essentially mimic, you know, anything. Um, I think that uh, let's talk first about you know sores in the mouth um the most common type of sores in the mouth these are ulcers in the mouth the most common one is going to be a canker sore i mean lots of people have canker sores that is absolutely not related to to cancer and these are typically solitary small ulcers that occur on the inside of your lip inside of your cheek potentially on your tongue and they're very painful and they disappear after you know 7 to 10 days depending on their location so that's not the way that cancer behaves some people can develop traumatic oral ulcers and this is where you've bitten the side of your tongue and perhaps particularly in patients who have a dry mouth the 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 little trauma never quite heals, it takes a long time to heal. And so sometimes they can be when you can look at those and say that, you know, looks like a chronic sore in the mouth. And it's not healing particularly well, that might make you think that it's potentially a cancer, cancer, it should be referred if it's not healing. Um, there are a number of other ulcerative diseases that occur in the mouth, That can occur in just one area of the mouth, or they can occur on both sides of the mouth or in multiple areas of the mouth. These are things like oral lichen planus, which is an immune-mediated disorder that causes all of these sores to occur. Um, There are other diseases like mucous membrane pemphigoid or pemphigus vulgaris, which are essentially autoimmune diseases where the autoimmune reaction is against the little protein, <laughs> that hold the lining mucosa together, hold the cells together. Um, that's a rare thing. Uh, but, you know, again, when someone has, you know, a mouthful of ulcers when they come in, it's typically not going to be oral cancer. Oral cancer is much more likely... To be in one area of the mouth, it's possible to have more than one in the mouth. I've had, you know, many patients that have had more than one cancer in the mouth, but typically, you know, it occurs usually in one site. And it's typically not going to have a sort of a symmetric presentation. And then we get to things that are exophytic. In other words, they grow off the surface And there are lots and lots of reasons why um, patients can have exophytic lesions. And you already mentioned one of them, the papilloma. Um, That is a little viral wart, essentially, that can occur in the mouth. And it usually has little finger-like projections. Um, You can develop what's called a pyogenic granuloma. Um, That is a reactive um, bump in the mouth typically it occurs, you know, on the gums, but it may occur in other structures. And there are other reactive gum lesions. And these are really in response to some um, gum problems, like a periodontal problem uh, that grow specifically on the gums. Um, There are things called irritation fibromas. These are bumps that usually occur on the inside of the cheek from biting um, part of your cheek and it causes a little growth to occur. Those are very benign.
0: So, so, so you've gone through quite a list here. Well, the reason I asked you that question is I wanted people to understand that in the average mouth that's presented in a dental office, there are many, many things which appear abnormal. And that's more yes. common than not. And yes. most of those are not precursors to cancer. Most of them are not cancer. And so um, keeping things in proportion to what they are in life, that when when you see patients come in with these variety of things and you've just listed eight or nine right there and there's probably another 20 that you could have gone on to. Having said that, most people present with abnormalities which are not cancer. Worthy of exploration, worthy of definition, uh, but probably outside of the realm of uh, autoimmune diseases, transient in the mouth, um, you know, and something that if you see the patient often enough, you will see them come and go. Uh, but uh, you, because we're so focused on oral cancer at OCF and to the people that work with us, they have a tendency to want to see oral cancer everywhere. And most of these things in general are not. So it's not unusual to find an oral cancer in a patient's mouth. It's, it's certainly common enough, especially if they use tobacco and they have other risk factors. Um, But at the end of the day, Dr. Kerr has just given us a long list of things that are not cancer and that will present. And um, so, but if it's persisting, which I think is the core timeline here between two and three weeks, and it doesn't resolve, the patient deserves an answer as to what it is. If that means... Biopsy, that's one possibility. If that means referral to an oral medicine specialist to define it more um, precisely, that's fine. But things that persist and don't go away deserve answers. But they don't always mean cancer. So, um, we've covered most of the the main questions from the social media postings over this last week. I think that uh, if you, unless you have something else you would think that we've missed in in our little discussion this morning, um, that would be um, important for us to make sure that we've covered all the bases as well as you think we can, Doctor Kerr. Yeah, you anything you'd like to add here at the end?
2: No, yeah, I think I'm going to end by just um, you know echoing what you said in terms of the legal ramifications, because uh, I've also, you know, been involved in a couple of legal cases. And I think the standard of care (laughs) is that if you see something that is abnormal, your duty to the patient is to tell them that it's there. Um, You don't necessarily have to decide to do a biopsy immediately, but you definitely need to follow up with that patient. And, um, sometimes the threshold of suspicion will suggest an immediate referral. Other times it's okay if you think it's something else to treat what you think it is and then have the patient come back and you need to clearly document everything that you do and, um, explain to the patient what's going on. And I think as long as you do that, you're in good shape. Um, It's the people that um, just are dismissive and say, oh, that's nothing to be worried about. That's an inappropriate response. You need to be able to think your way through any abnormal finding that you encounter, just the same way that you would if a patient came in with a, a tooth problem. You know, I mean, it's another structure in the mouth. I find that dentists are very good, you know, at focusing in on the teeth and not always on the soft tissue structures of the mouth. And so we need to be able to (laughs) always perform a comprehensive examination on every single patient, at every single new patient visit, at every single recall visit, and at any other opportunity like an emergency visit when patients come in. Even though they might be saying, I've got this toothache down here, you should still look throughout the mouth at that given appointment and um and so that's that's my sort of closing remark
0: well i appreciate that and that's very important we um, are big advocates that every time a patient visits an rdh or visits a dentist that a quick screening is done it doesn't take much time it's very non-invasive and so um, thank you for echoing that for us
2: and the RDH are very, you know, I'm, I'm very, you know, I think it's they're, they're doing a fantastic job. So if there's anyone out there in the RDH world, I think that you can <laughs> you know, a very, very important role in all of this. And um, if you're any of the RDHs are listening and they'd be interested in, you know, getting more involved in oral medicine, we actually have an affiliate um, fellowship at the American Academy of Oral Medicine. And um, we, you know, embrace um, RDHs and other, you know, healthcare providers in our organization. So consider checking that out. It's on on the website.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. Given the address of the website?
2: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, www.aaom.com. com.
0: Great. So um, we've been talking today to Dr. Ross Kerr from NYU, an oral medicine specialist. You're listening to episode uh, 2018, number one. Dr. Kerr, thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Thank you Um, so much, Dr. Kerr.
0: Yeah, this has been wonderful having you here. And I'm gonna stop recording here in a minute, but if you'd stay on the line with me for one minute, I would appreciate it. Thank you all for tuning in today. In two weeks, we will have another speaker back on Oral Cancer Answers from the Oral Cancer Foundation. Thank you for joining us.